Welcome to Souls Harbor's weekly podcast. We believe that God has called us to lead people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, help them grow to be like Jesus, and involve them in reaching lost people. Listen now to this week's message. Hey, if you've got your Bibles this morning, turn with me. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Revelation today. I want to preach out of Revelation for a little bit. We're going to be in chapter 21, so I'll let you all get over there if you would like to. I want to preach a message this morning entitled, Invited. It's called Invited. And I want to open with a question for you all. I want to ask you something uh, that I think I know what your answer will be. And and it's this, okay? This is a little bit maybe deeper theologically than I normally go on a Sunday morning, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it anyway. Who is the bride of Christ? Who is the bride of Christ? I heard we are, us. Joel's got his hand up in the back, and I assume he's going to tell us the same thing, the bride of Christ. All right, that's, 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 that's terrific. You guys hold on to that thought for a few minutes here. Let me tell you a story. My wife and I, we got married August 24th. I had to stop and think about that to get myself in trouble. August 24th, 1985, and we went on our honeymoon. Now, honeymoons mean different things to different people. For some people, I mean, there's pieces of a honeymoon that means the same thing to everybody, okay? I'm not talking about that this morning. But for some people, let's say fly to Europe. For some people, they fly to Spain. For some people, they go to the Bahamas. For some people, they go to Florida. For, I mean, it, it just depends on the individual. But it's, you do it together, you go together, it's just a good experience. Well, Ruthie and I, we, we, were, we, did, we didn't come from money, all right? If y'all haven't figured that out, I've told you that a few times. We didn't come from money, and I was in college still at the time, and um, we didn't have a whole lot of money, so we honeymooned, honeymooned in the big metropolis of Leesburg, Indiana. How many of you know where Leesburg, Indiana is? Anybody? You do? Really? Okay, wow. Unless you're going there, you probably don't go there. I mean, it's, it's probably maybe 800 people, and we, we honeymooned in Leesburg because that was where we could afford because it was free. Say free is good. Free is good. Free is good. One of these days, we're going to take our real honeymoon. We just haven't figured out when. We probably need to get it in before we hit our 50th anniversary because by that point we'll be so, it, it just won't, you know, where, where are you going to go at, at that point? Because um, I'll be what, like 94? I don't know, I have to do the math on that. Um, no, I won't be that old. I'll be 69 maybe. I can't do math standing here in front of you all. You make me nervous. <laughs> we went to Leesburg because Ruthie's sister lived in Leesburg and her and her husband were going on vacation. And they called us up and said, hey, we're going on vacation. Don't know what you guys are planning. And the answer was, not very much. We didn't have any money, so we didn't have many plans. If you would like to come and stay at our house for the week, we're going to be gone. And we will set you up, and you can come and stay at our house. And that's what we did in Leesburg, Indiana, population 800 people north of Warsaw on State Road 15. Now, you know, we, like I said, we all have our ideas of what the honeymoon is. And, of course, there's the physical part of it. I, I get all that. But you know what it really was for us? It it was the first time in our lives where we were going to begin to live and dwell together. And what I want to preach this morning, what I want to share this morning, is that concept of there's coming a time, there's coming a place, there's coming a day where we are going to dwell with God as the bride of Christ. Now, I think that probably carries more weight for me because of the life experience her and I were having when we got married I was in college, as I said, I lived at 
my mom and dad, she lived at her mom and dad's because we're so old school that yeah, we actually thought you did that until you got married. You didn't live together until you got married. We were crazy weird like that, which may be why we've been married for 35 years, right? Um, yeah, I could preach there for a minute, but I'll keep going. Um, I would get up in the morning and I would go to work. I worked a construction job for four hours in the morning. I'd part-time, I'd go and I'd work and I'd get off at 11, 12. Um, I'd come home, I'd, I'd jump in the, in the shower, clean up, and I'd jump in my car. I'd drive an hour and 15 minutes to Fort Wayne, Indiana to go to school. And I'd be there for four hours. I'd go through four hours of class. I'd get out of there and I'd turn around and I'd drive from there to where she lived and her mom and dad lived in Plymouth. And I'd drive an hour and 45 minutes from school to her house. And I'd get to her house in the evening, um, usually around six o'clock. She was working because we were working together to build a life, a coming life together. She worked. She worked at a restaurant called Penguin Point. How many of you ever heard of Penguin Point? The Wally Burger, right? Yeah. Great fried chicken back when I was skinny and could eat all that stuff. It was wonderful. And when she'd, she'd work, and she worked most days of the week, I'd get there, and the only person at her mom and dad's house were her mom and dad. In fact, her mom most of the time and her, and her younger sister. And I loved her mom. Me and her mom got along great. And she fixed me fried pork chops and fried chicken and fried fish and fried squirrel. And I was like, I ain't leaving you, girl. So I'd, I'd stay there till she'd get off. And she'd usually get off work about 10 o'clock at night. Weekends, Fridays, it'd be 11, 12 o'clock, and I'd go pick her up uptown and bring her back to her house, and I'd stay at her house for an hour or so. So it's now 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, and I'd get in my car, and I'd drive from my car my car from her house to my house. That's where I slept, and I would stay at my house, and I'd, I'd get there, and I'd sleep for four or five hours, and I'd get up and do it all over again. And we did this for a year. Now, now listen, I know for some of you that are under the age of 30, this is going to be crazy and hard to imagine, but it, this was pre-social media days. This was pre-cell phone days. The only way you could talk to somebody was pick up a, a, a phone that was actually attached to a wall. That was all, we had, there was no such thing as text. The only communication we had was on that lined phone or actually face-to-face. And I, I was trying to think this morning, as I recall, I don't remember us ever calling each other in the morning. So the only time we had to spend together was that hour or so window in the evening. And I had no idea what was going on in her world for the rest of the day, and she had no idea what was going on in my world for the rest of the day because we had no communication or no way to communicate whatsoever. So when we come to that point of our marriage and our wedding and our honeymoon, it was the first day we were going to be able to dwell together, stay together, live together, communicate together, spend time together. And that's why it had such a powerful impact, I think, on our life. Who's the bride of Christ? You all said the church, and I think that's a common assumption, and you're going to see fair. But let's look at this again. Who's the bride of Christ? Revelation 21 gives us a little insight. It says in verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So we're going to see who the bride of Christ is. We see in verse 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And in Revelation 21, all of a sudden, the bride of Christ isn't the church. It's the the city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. You ever think about that before? We, just in case you may be, Pastor Barry, I'm not sure I get that. I think you read that wrong. If you go back just a few verses before that in chapter 21, 
uh, verses 1 and 2, it says the same thing. And let me read that to you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I ask you again, who's the bride of Christ? Who's the bride of Christ? Is the bride of Christ the church, or is the bride of Christ the, the, the new Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem that John talks about in chapter 21? Let me just take a moment, because I see some of you are looking at me funny. There's this concept called a metaphor. How many of you have heard of metaphor? Metaphor is the way the Bible works, and especially Revelation works, and apocalyptic literature works, where it takes something that I don't understand, and it explains it to me by comparing it to something that I sort of kind of do understand. And they're not exactly the same, but there's a connection there that helps me to get a deeper understanding into what I don't understand from what I do understand. And metaphor is one of those things that happens a lot in Scripture, and it happens a lot, and it's happening here. Who is the bride of Christ? Let me take you back to chapter 19, verse 7, and let's look at another passage that explains who the bride of Christ is. Let us rejoice, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." Who's the bride of Christ? The new Jerusalem coming down? That's one metaphor that's used to explain what it's really all about. But then we've also got this one where the bride of Christ is adorned or dressed in these pure linens, in, in, in these white linens that are the acts, the, the, the righteous deeds of the saints. Paul gives us a little bit of insight in Ephesians 5. He says this, and he's describing husbands, but he talks about that relationship as also being compared to the bride of Christ. He says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church. That's you all, right? You know that. He might present you all, the church, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Who is the bride of Christ? Who is the bride of Christ? It, it's God's way, it's John's way, it's a way of using metaphor to explain this. There's coming of day, there's coming a moment in time where God himself is going to begin to dwell in a holy city called Jerusalem. It's a beautiful place. It's a holy place. It's a place without sin. But you know, to just live in a beautiful city isn't enough. He, God himself is going to come and dwell in this place called the New Jerusalem. And, and I believe it's a real place, even though it's used as a metaphor. I, I mean, you, you look at the description. It gives the width and the length and the height and the gates and the material it's made out of. But he's going to come and live in that city, a holy city, a holy place with his holy people, his church. Do you all understand this this morning? There's coming a day, there's coming a moment, there's coming a point in time when each and every one of us that are walking in a relationship with Christ are going to step from this, this pre, um, pre-eternity days into a point, call it the wedding, the marriage supper of the bride, call it, call it whatever you choose to call it, describe it however you choose to, to describe it, but it's going to be like me and Ruthie before our marriage. We, we saw each other once in a while, we had some connection with each other, we fell in love with each other, we would talk to one another, but after the wedding, after the marriage, all of a sudden we dwelled together all the time. 
you're going to have the opportunity to dwell with the God who created you, who loves you, who knows what makes you the most fulfilled, the most joyous, the most happy in this world. You're going to be able to dwell with him, not just in moments. And folks, listen, I don't know what your prayer life's like. I hope it's good. But I wonder sometimes, do we talk to God the way Ruthie and I used to talk? We get just little windows once a day. When the sad thing is, we actually, through prayer, we've got the opportunity to talk to God all the time, don't we? The older I've got, I used to really, really stress and really focus and really even beat myself up that I can't spend an hour in, in prayer every day before, before the day begins or at the end of day. I just would struggle to spend that entire hour just doing that. And I've, I've come to learn. I still spend significant times with God, but I've come to learn that prayer is something I can do throughout the day, all day, all the time, in any circumstance, in any situation. Because God is somebody I can talk to all the time, but there's going to come a day where the people of God are going to dwell with God in an even more powerful way. As a matter of fact, John, in Revelation 21, goes on and says that. He says in verses 3 and 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with mankind, and he will dwell with them. Now listen to this. How many of you are looking forward to retirement? I want to ask how many wish they weren't retired because there might be some of those as well. There's coming a day where we're going to step into eternal retirement. Now, some people retire to go and do nothing. Those are usually the people that are miserable and hate retirement, but most people retire to something. We're going to retire, eternal retirement someday, but it's not going to be to do nothing. It's going to be to do something. I don't know what eternity is going to look like. I don't know what God is going to have us do. I don't know what our, our future is going to be. I, I was thinking this morning, um, it, it, what it really is is a return to the, the garden. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a return to that place where God would come down in the cool of the evening and walk with man and talk with man. It's a, it's a, but, but even in the garden, didn't God give man something to do? He was busy. And okay, so maybe we spend a million years or a billion years just giving God worship. That would be all right. But when you're talking eternity, a million or a billion years is nothing. Literally nothing. I don't know what eternity is going to look like. I just know eternity is forever. And I think we're going to have things to do and be busy and have responsibilities and have cares. And we're going to be active and we're going to be, I mean, for crying out loud, I'm going to have a glorified body. Okay, I'm going to be strong, I'm going to be healthy, I'm going to be eternal, I'm going to do something. Right? And and we're going to do it, we're going to dwell with God. And in that place, it says, and God himself will be with them as their God. In verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You, You know, God is going to come and he's going to dwell with man all mankind. Some of you here this morning have had family that has left this life before you. Children, parents, brothers, siblings, uh, spouses. Those that left in relationship with God are going to be there with us. We're going to dwell together with God. What a powerful time, a powerful place. Ruthie and I, uh, a lot of years ago now, this is probably within three or four years of being married, 
five years, I, I don't know, it was early on, we got invited to a wedding. It was a, a young man we were really good friends with. Uh, he was a, one of the uh, adult leaders in our youth group that we were, where we were uh, youth pastoring. And the wedding was in Rochester, which is up in northern Indiana as well. And this is, again, this is so far back. This is, we, we didn't have phones. We didn't have GPS. We didn't have any of those things. And I don't know why we were running late to get to the wedding. We were leaving home to go there. It was probably my, we were probably running late because it's me. It was my fault, probably. I don't really remember, but just it's my story, so I can tell it how I want to, all right? It was probably my fault. But we were running late, and so we knew we were going to roll in there like two or three minutes before the wedding was going to start. I mean, we knew we were going to be close, and we get on the road, and we're headed, headed to where we're going and realize, oh, man, we don't have the invitation. And the invitation has the address. That was probably Ruth's fault. She was probably one response. It's my story. I could tell her how I want to. That was probably her responsibility, but... We, we, didn't have the, we didn't have the invitation. So Rochester's not a super big town, and we kind of knew the area that it was probably in. So we're like, all right, we're just going to go ahead and go, and we'll find this thing and, you know, throw up a quick prayer. God, please help us find this church quickly so we can actually get in before the wedding starts. So we, we get down to Rochester, and we start driving through some streets and looking for this thing. And there's this great, big, beautiful church, and there's cars around it. You can see that it's a wedding and there's people going in, and, and they've got, you know, they've got the car, the getaway car with all the streamers out the back and the cans hanging on, so we know it's a wedding. And like, all right, we found it. Thank you, Jesus. So we get out. I think we had Matt with us uh, at that point. We go into this wedding, and we step into the back, and it's like one or two minutes before the wedding's going to start, and we're just glad that the bride's not walking down the aisle as we're trying to slip in the back. So we slip in the back of this church, and, and we get in there and off to one side, and we're looking, trying to find a place to sit, and we begin to look around and realize... I don't recognize any of these people, Ruth. I think we got the wrong wedding. And we did what, like any decent human being would do. We're like, oh man, all right, we're getting out of here. We slipped out a side door. And went out. We were at the wrong wedding. We didn't have an invitation to that wedding. We were not invited to that wedding. It was the wrong wedding. And we went and got in the car, and we went and drove around a little bit more. And sure enough, just a few blocks away was another church having another wedding going on. And we got there just in time that the bride and groom were walking out of the church. So we, we came down, and we slipped at the end of the, the processional line, you know. And we got, we, give me some rice. And they come down, and we're throwing rice at them, acting like we've been there for the, what a beautiful wedding. That was wonderful, you know. Um, we've got the gift in the, in the car. We'll bring you the gift. We were not invited in. You know, there's nothing more troublesome than to end up at a wedding where you're not invited. And it's interesting because in chapter 19, verse 9, we, we kind of get that. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. You know what's worse than showing up at a wedding as a guest where you're not invited? showing up at a wedding as the bride where you're not invited. You want to talk about awkward, right? And, and, and John writes, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Maybe the most important question I can ask you this morning is, are you invited? That may be the most important question you hear all week, maybe all month, maybe all year, maybe the rest of your life. Are, 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 you, are you invited to this wedding? Are you invited to this place where God is going to come and dwell with man? Are you invited? And you say, well, of course, Pastor Barry, I'm invited. Well, 
I hope so, and I believe so, but let's, let's just look a little deeper into God's Word. We find out that the people that are invited are those who conquer. Revelation 21 puts it this way, the one who conquers will have, his, have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The one who conquers. Are you invited? See, if you are not a conqueror, then you're not invited. Pastor, that's kind of harsh. Well, it's kind of true. The one who conquers will have this heritage. We're going to see in a minute, the one who's a coward, who's cowardly, will not have this heritage. The one who conquers will have this heritage. You know, I, I, I've got this concern about the, the, the church. I, I, I think, and, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons for it, but we have so, how do I put this? Let me say it and then and don't get mad at me, Okay. We have so feminized the church, and I'm not opposed to you ladies, and part of the reason for that is men quit standing up and taking care of their responsibilities, and the ladies were good enough to step in and begin to help run the church and, and take those authoritative leadership roles. And, but we've, we've so feminized the church that we no longer want to talk about conquering and battle and fights and warfare. We used to have... Those things used to be in our hymns back when we sang hymns. As a matter of fact, I remember, it's been a few decades ago now, but I remember the, 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 the time, the period when there were a lot of our churches across the country. I don't know that it was so much Assembly of God churches, but a lot of the more mainstream churches were going through their hymnals and just tearing out this hymn. Nope, can't sing that. Nope, blood, Battle, fight, that stuff's no good. We're not going to do that anymore. That's not, a, that's not politically correct. We're not going to do that anymore. And I wonder sometimes if part of the reason we struggle to get men interested in church and interested in the things of God is we've so uh, feminized it. And again, I don't mean that in an insulting way to you ladies. Can I, can I give you this revelation I heard this week? Absolutely dead serious about this. Her, heard, a, heard a psychologist say this. He said it tongue-in-cheek. He said it... Um, a little bit sarcastically, because he already knew that, but he said, you know, our, our colleges um, have lost sight of this. He said, did you know something? We're finding out, again, men and women are different. Did you all know that? He said our colleges have, for decades now, been teaching that men and women are the same. Meaning that if you take a woman and you raise her in the same culture as a man, you put her in the same family setting as a man, you put her in the same atmosphere as a man, you raise her to dress like a man, and, and, and there be no difference. We see that going on in our culture today, don't we? That woman will, will grow up and want, have the same desires and want to do the same jobs as a man. And he was laughing about it. He, he said they've tried this in the Scandinavian countries in Europe. He said, you know what they found out? He said they've completely made the society egalitarian, which means men and women are completely treated exactly the same from birth to death. You know, there's no dresses, there's no pants, there's no cap guns versus, you know, bows in the hair. They have made, taken men and women and gave them complete, complete total liberty to dress and look and act and, and do whatever they want to do. And he said, you know what they found out in the Scandinavian countries now that they've done that? Instead of the genders, the sexes becoming more alike, they become less alike. In other words, you give little girls the opportunity and complete freedom to become what they want to become. You know what they become? You know what they don't become? 
Many, and, and not all, but many don't become engineers. They don't become, um, they don't become, George, they don't become bricklayers. A lot of them don't want to go into the military. You know what they choose to do? They choose to do what many times we would consider the traditional roles. And you take men and put them in the same role. And you know what? And, and, and God has made men and women different. And when we have complete liberty to be whatever we want to be, you can be an engineer, you can be a bricklayer, you can be whatever you want to be, you can be an electrician. All these little girls are saying, you know what? I don't want to do that. I want to be a mom. Now, there's a lot of other things that ladies and, and, and girls want to do besides just be a mom. I'm thankful we're finally coming to the place where there's some value put on motherhood again because for so many years it was just what ladies did that couldn't get a job. How sad is that? Probably the most important job you'll ever have with the worst pay. <laughs> right? God's made men and women different and there is a piece of Christianity men you need to get a hold of we've got to be conquerors ladies you need to get a hold of this too if you want an invitation you've got to be a conqueror that implies battles fights maybe some warfare now listen you say pastor Barry I don't like the directions it's going this morning I don't think we ought to go there I think this is going to be a bad thing I'm gonna tell you every battle isn't fought with a gun you can say amen. Thank goodness for that. We could talk about Martin Luther King. Fought a lot of battles without a gun. We could talk about Nancy, uh, 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 Mandela, Nelson Mandela. Fought a lot of battles without a gun. I mean, we could, even outside of Christianity, we could talk about Gandhi, who fought a lot of battles. A lot of battles have to be fought without a gun, but I can tell you one thing. Every battle requires courage. If you're going to conquer, you've got to have courage. Courage. If you, if, if, you, if, you, if you say, Pastor Bear, I don't know about this whole conquering thing, go back and read, and I'm not going to do it this morning. We don't have time to do it this morning. Go back and read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. We've been on this on Wednesdays. Seven times in those two chapters, those two short chapters, he says the one who conquers will get a white robe. The one who conquers will drink of the river of life. The one who conquers will be the one that steps into the new Jerusalem. The one who conquers. Time and time again, John writes, it's the one who conquers that is the one that who gets the invitation. This morning, are you invited? Because to be invited, we've absolutely got to be conquerors. The one who conquers is the one who's invited. And you know what the opposite of conquering is? The opposite of courage is? It's the idea of cowardly. And we find in the very next... Pa I remember the first time I read this, this, this verse. I was, I was probably still uh, an old teenager or young, er, very early 20s, pre-ministry days. I can remember reading this. And, and it shocked me because I'm like, really? Just being a coward will keep you out of heaven? Verse 20, chapter 21, verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If I'm reading that right, to be a coward is to be somebody that's not going to be invited. It takes courage. It takes boldness. It takes a willing to su willingness to suffer. It takes a willingness to stand on what's right, despite what comes at you, to find yourself with an invitation to that wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, this book, this, this letter, this apocalypse was written to the first century, and, and I want to bring this to a close this morning with some, some 
thoughts about what it means to be a conqueror, what, it, what, what John meant when he said conqueror. In the first century, which is the first people that this letter was written to, so we always do well to start there, what, did, what was meant by the first, the, 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 the first century. Um, the idea of conquering, you go back and read chapter 2 and chapter 3, you, you absolutely see this. How did they conquer? They had to conquer, they had to conquer battles politically. There, there were economic places they had to conquer. There were cultural places they had to conquer. And I want to look at the first century, and I want to look at the 21st century this morning. Politically, it went like this in the first century. Y'all still with me? Can you give me five more minutes? First century, it went like this. The, the church came of age at a time, and this, this letter was written to the, the church in the area of Turkey today at a time when emperor worship had become a big thing. The emperors of Rome, the Caesars, had decided, we are gods and you will worship us. And if you want to succeed, um, you're going to also kneel yourself down, bow yourself down, and worship Caesar. There was a, All political pressure you can imagine was asserted on Christians in that first century to say, you will call Caesar God. Talk about pressure. You read chapter 2 and chapter 3 and you find that early church, there were people that were being martyred because they refused to call Caesar God. It went deeper than that. It wasn't just political pressure. It was also economic pressure because the guilds and the unions uh, were, were a big thing in that part of the world. And if you weren't part of a trade guild that, that worshipped one of those gods and followed their political views, then you were not going to have the opportunity to make a living and care for your family. And the economic pressure was put on people to not only bow down and worship Caesar, but bow down and worship all of the gods that that particular city, the city of Corinth and, 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 and the city of Athens and, and Athena, you had to be willing to bow down and serve. And, and, and you had to surrender to the political pressure. You had to surrender, surrender to the economic pressure and the cultural pressure. And the cultural, I, I've read a little bit of a historian. His name's Tacitus, and I may pronounce that incorrectly, but I've read some of his early uh, second century history of, of the church and, and he was writing from a non-Christian perspective and he talks about Christians in very, very derogatory terms and one of the things he accuses them of is being atheist. You talk about cultural pressure. We think, what do you mean atheist? How can that be, Pastor Barry? If you didn't believe in, in Caesar as God, if you didn't believe in the Roman gods, if you didn't believe in the Greek gods, if you didn't believe in the local gods, then you didn't believe in enough gods. If you just believed in Jesus as God, then you were, for all practical purposes, in their culture, you were an atheist. You wouldn't be in the guild. You couldn't make a living. You were going to face political persecution conquerors. Now we jump ahead to the 21st century. Don't we find some of the same things going on? Politically pressured to become politically correct. Politically pressured. I've been watching going on in Canada because I suspect it reflects where we're going in America. I've been watching in Canada. Canada in the last uh, few weeks, maybe a couple of months, has passed legislation that says that that if you are unwilling to use the new transgender um, terms and stop calling people Mr. and Mrs., you can be prosecuted for a hate crime. Did you all know that? They're, they're not any, you know, we, we came out with the idea of, of hate speech here a number of years ago in the States, 
and, and it said there are certain words you cannot say. If you say them, then you are, are propagating hate, and you can be charged with a hate crime if they're connected to something else. And, and, and listen, there are some words we Christians have no business saying. Okay? I'm just not sure it's the politician's job to tell us what we should and shouldn't say. But in Canada, they've gone further. It's no longer just you can't use these terms. It is if you don't use these terms, then you can be prosecuted with something as a hate crime. In other words, if I want to call Ginger Mrs. and Ginger says, no, I'm not a Mrs. anymore. I'm a, and they've got a, I mean, there's a slew of like 70 some terms that you can be used. And in whatever terms she wants to be called, if I choose to not call her that, I can be prosecuted for a hate crime. Conquerors may come to mean a whole different thing in this country than it used to mean for us Christians. You know, a, a year and a half ago, it became very popular in Washington, D.C. that if a, a conservative politician was sitting at a table in a restaurant to have a group of people, a mob, come in and mock them and make fun of them and attack them and run them out. That was the first step. Today, we've watched, I've watched, I've seen the videos, I've watched it happen. Groups come in. And, and claiming to be about social justice and come in. And anybody that was sitting in that restaurant, people that were there that had no political connections whatsoever, being told, you will lift your hand and make a fist, and if you don't, I will, and watching them just sweep the stuff off of the table. Now, if we've got hate legislation, hate crime legislation in Canada passed, we see those things happen in America, how big of a step is it for those to come to us Christians and say, Christian, unless you're willing to say and denounce your belief in a, a man and a woman in a marriage, or unless you're willing to, to uh, denounce your belief that God made man, man and female, or, or many of the other things that culturally right now just go completely contrary to the Word of God, how close are we coming to the point where it, it's not the politicians, it's not those on the social justice side, but it's those that are coming at us Christians because we have beliefs that are biblically moral. And you, you understand what I'm saying? When you find yourself sitting in a restaurant and you're given a choice, you're either going to say what I want you to say or I will attack you and your wife what are you going to do? I think conquering may come to take on a whole different context than it has in the past. And I hope I'm wrong. And I hope we see this nation turn around and go a different direction. But I'm going to tell you, we are pretty evenly split. We've got the idea that tolerance no longer means, and I've got to bring this to a close, Tolerance no longer means you can have a view and a belief and a lifestyle that I completely disagree with. And I'll tell you that I disagree with you, but I'm okay letting you live your life your way. And I'll give you the freedom, the liberty to live your life however you choose to. I'll tolerate you. I'll be tolerant of your views. But I don't agree with them. But that's not what tolerance means anymore. Now what tolerance means is I've got to look at a lifestyle that I look at and I compare to the Word of God and say that is an immoral lifestyle. I can no longer stand up and say that's an immoral lifestyle. That's intolerance. But it's not. I can't even be tolerant until I disagree with somebody. Right? 
We're living in a day and an age where it's, it's all about safe spaces. You know, there used to be you'd send your kids to college, to university, and you'd send them off and expect them to be exposed to a lot of different views and a lot of different beliefs. But today it's safe space. You can't, so many of our, our colleges, you can't even invite somebody to come in that offers a different perspective or a different view because those kids have got to have their safe space. And if anybody comes in that has a different worldview than them, a different perspective than them, then you might, you might offend them, you might hurt their feelings, you might damage them. Don't think it's not beginning to trickle into our high schools because it is in our grade schools. Conquerors. I'm going to bring this to a close. Why don't you stand with me this morning? Are you invited? The greatest battle you're ever going to fight is not even those that I've mentioned so far, but it's the battle that you're going to fight inside of yourself. John goes on, he says, murderers, sexually immoral people, idolatrous sorcerers, those will have no part in heaven. And I'll leave you with this last thought. Are you invited? Have you fought the battle? Are you conquering, not only on the outside, but on the inside? What goes on in here, what goes on in here? Because only those who conquer are going to have that invitation. And I don't know about you all, listen, I don't want to go to hell. Anybody else? Don't want to go to hell. But my only reason for being a Christian is not just that I don't want to go to hell. I want to be at that supper. I want to be the one who dwells with God forever. I want to be the one who dwells with you all forever. We'll have our own mansions, okay? That's what I want. Because I'm going to tell you what. Eternity is a really long time. So I ask you this morning, as we get ready to leave this place, please, 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 I preached last week, please don't, don't choose to die. I'm going to preach this week. Would you please examine your heart today, sometime, someplace, somewhere, some moment, sometime, will you examine your heart today and make sure that everything in there is right? And as this world goes, whatever direction this world goes, make your decision, and men, you especially make your decision. Your feet are on the ground, they're planted, and you are not going to bend you, you're, you're not going to be conquered. You're going to be a conqueror. Amen? Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you so much for your word. It's amazing, the first century, how much truth applies to the 21st century. And I pray this morning that you would help us each one to be conquerors, help us one each, to, each one to live courageously, help us each one, Lord, to live for you and live with an expectation of that invitation one day. We look forward to the day we'll dwell with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you're looking for a church home or are interested in what God is doing through Souls Harbor, visit us at www.soulsharborag.com. If you have an encouraging story of what God has done in your life through these podcasts, please share it with us at sharbor at indy.rr.com.